You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program for a beautiful Tuesday. I'm still in the basement. I'm still in COVID isolation. My wife doing better, though. Still COVID, still sick. Daughter's on the mend. And we, my son and I, kind of, you know, hanging in there. So we linger at the end of the one crisis as we watch the other crisis unfold. We've got an incredible show for you today. And you're going to meet some incredibly brave people. You're going to meet someone, a young person who is in Kharkiv next. And, and Kharkiv, I, I want you to understand this, is getting bombarded. This is the heart of the war zone. Okay, the Russians are hammering this city and this guy has been there. He's a videographer and a photojournalist. He has been in Kharkiv uh, since February 25th. And and we have not had someone live on the ground in Kharkiv. The kind of bravery you're about to hear is extraordinary. So stay with me because I haven't spoken to him yet either. And on the ground, you want to know what's going on. This, there's no um, sugarcoating this. This is Russia slaughtering people, wiping out a city of more than a million people. And when people say the Russian, the Russians have miscalculated, yes. The Russians' military is proving to be significantly less effective than people thought, yes. That Putin's made a major miscalculation, yes. That the Ukrainians are fighting back harder than anybody ever expected, yes. Are they braver? Yes. That the West has moved more swiftly on sanctions and on supplying weapons to the Ukrainians, yes, yes, yes. But don't let that blind you in the fog of war from the terrible, terrifying, deadly, ruthless, and murderous destruction that Russia is still reaping on the people of Ukraine. It is a slaughter. And Kharkiv is the center of it, or one of the centers. And we're going to go there. So just please stay with me. You want truth? This is, this is what's coming. Now, you will know, you will know the impact of war not just on your souls, for those of you who are feeling the pain of the 1.7 million Ukrainians who have fled, 1.7 million people on day 13 of the war. So if you're a human being, your compassion meter must be redlining. If you're a human being, your heart is aching for the people of Ukraine. But you're also feeling it at the pump. And I you know, today at the local gas station, I was looking it up, buck 88 a liter for regular. In parts of Vancouver, two bucks. And, and, and inflation on food is coming because Russia and Ukraine produce so much wheat. And you're going to get a lot of inflation on, on gas. Now, Energy war is key. The energy war is something to keep focused on. You're going to feel it. And you're going to want to try to understand it. And there's going to be a lot of fog of war here. Oh, my God, it's the carbon tax. If you're in Ontario. 
or in any part of the country. Oh, gosh, we, we've got to build pipelines. We've got to build liquefied natural gas. Let me give you what's happened today. I'm going to give you some facts because energy is going to emerge as one of the major issues here because it is a weapon of war for Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin knows he, calcul- he miscalculated. This is the most incredible miscalculation. That he could run a pipeline of nat- liquefied natural gas, LNG, Nord Stream 2 through Europe, and that would essentially be the stake through the heart of the NATO alliance. That Germany especially would be so dependent on Russian LNG through Nord Stream 1 and 2 that there would no way that they could ever do anything. They're hooked on Russian oil and gas, and that will prevent NATO from uniting. That will prevent the EU from uniting, and Russia can accomplish its strategic goal by doing whatever the hell it wants in Ukraine and anywhere else because they're the pusher of the LNG drug, and the addiction is too strong. And and Putin has wildly miscalculated that. Now, the U.S., Joe Biden, just minutes before the show, said this, um, that he is banning all imports of Russian oil and gas. Check this out. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. That is true, but it's not that hard for the U.S. to do it. The U.S. produces more oil and gas than all of Europe combined. They're net exporters. The EU is an importer. So this is why today's announcement and yesterday when the EU said they are going to cut dependency on Russian gas, get this, by two-thirds this year and within the next seven or eight years by 2030, well before, they're going to end it all together. This is, folks, I, I, I can't stress this enough. The EU saying they're going to cut EU dependency on Russian gas, this includes Germany, by two-thirds this year is wild is wild. They Why? Because Russia supplies 40% of the bloc's natural gas. And then you say, well, how do they do it? Well, they're going to have to get liquefied natural gas from the United States and Qatar. They store about six months of supply anyway so they can get through the winter. They're going to, they say, try to put on new wind and solar products, but that won't be enough. They're going to turn down thermostats by one degree. But they got to get more LNG. Now, you might hear, okay, well, Canada. Like, Jason Kenney tweeted out that the Biden's energy policy depends on Russian oil, Iranian oil, Saudi oil, Venezuelan oil, but then he put an X beside Canadian oil, which is crazy. We know that. Can I just give you facts? Like, everyone's trying to profit on this. The U.S. imports crude oil, of all their imports, 61% of their crude oil comes from Canada. 61%. Do you know how much comes from Saudi Arabia? Eight. Colombia, four. Iraq, three. Mexico, 11. We are by far the largest. Okay? And Canada provides the total... Petroleum imports, 
not just crude, but total petrol, uh, uh, 52%. Russia, 70%. Sorry, 7%. Saudi Arabia, 7 Canada, 52 So Canada's in the driver's seat. Now, then you think, okay, Canada should start getting into the liquefied natural gas game. Well, we have like 18 projects that are on the books, but they're very expensive. There's a one in BC in Kitimat that's still three to four years away. It's an $18 billion project. We could have one in Newfoundland and Labrador that the government just recently delayed its decision on by about 40 days. But let me just say there are no, we, we are the fifth largest producer here in Canada of LNG. So we could help supply Europe, and we will need to. But I, I want to be clear here. This is not tomorrow. This is a five-year project. And what is happening in Europe is they are moving towards other renewables. That LNG is critical, but it is a transition. These are the, the numbers. So be very wary of people saying, Canada, build an east pipeline. There's no proponent. Canada. Change your rules and, and, and get LNG built. We could do that. There's not no question you can do that. But building it, you got to find $15 billion and you got to find five years. You can't speed it up to make that terminal. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to have an expert on gas prices because you, this war will cost you. But before it costs you, it's costing the people of Ukraine. And, and, and let me take a break. I, please stay with me here. We're going to go on the ground in Kharkiv, ground zero of the Russian attack. They're flattening the city. We haven't been there in 13 days, and we're going there now. Next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. We're trying to reach a journalist right now who is in the center of the war in Kharkiv, in the northeast of Ukraine. The Russians have been bombing Kharkiv brutally. And Shantkel Kachurian photojournalist and videographer is currently involved in a, in a Kharkiv to uh, Dnipro evacuation mission organized by some volunteers. We were put in touch with him by Finn de Ponche, who worked with him when they were both in Kharkiv early in the war when we talked to Finn there. But Shant is still there. He's been filming and taking photos. Now, he's hard to reach. This is the second largest city in Ukraine. So think about Canada now and think about 1.4 million people. That's bigger than Ottawa. Think about a city of 1.4 million that the Russians have been shelling, firing missiles. It is brutal. When you look at pictures of Kharkiv's, it's they're wiping it off the ground. And there's million, almost a million and a half people there. And when you look at what's happening, it's 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 shocking. Shant, we've got Shant now. Uh, thank you for for joining us, uh, Shant Kel 
catcher Ian, uh, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Um, can you give us a sense? We know Harkiv's been absolutely shelled. Uh, give us a sense of where you are and, and what you're seeing there, sir. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Uh, so today I went to Kharkiv. I uh, did a little tour of uh, the center and I saw absolute obliteration of uh, buildings that are not military. Uh, there were buildings that were just caved in, uh, windows blown out, small businesses just destroyed. And it was it was hard to watch. Give us this this city, Kharkiv, where you were there earlier with uh, Finn de Ponce and others, Shant, um, um, 1.4 million people. But in the last 12 days, it has been leveled. Um, how widespread is the destruction and, and, and the human toll there, Shant? So I'd say it's contained to uh, the center and the east part of town. Uh, we enter through the south. Uh, the west is secured. Uh, the center had a few shellings happen, including where the administration building is located. There's a, a huge missile that landed there uh, and killed and injured many people, civilians. And uh, while we were there, uh, I heard shelling happening off to the east part of town. Shan, are, are the, is the Ukrainian military still in control of Kharkiv? And how close are the, are, is the, are the Russian forces? I'd say that the city is still under Ukrainian control and that the Russians are in a field uh, to the east of Kharkiv. And they are constantly bombarding the town, uh, trying to uh, get everyone to evacuate and uh, try and... Uh, thin out the uh, Ukrainian line before they uh, launch a full-scale uh, assault on the on the city itself. How are people trying to get out? They're trying to flee west. It must be, it's dangerous as hell to go there. Yes, exactly. So the civilians are trying to flee west, but in order to do so, uh, they need to get into cars, uh, vehicles, uh, transports of... Uh, uh, on uh, on wheels. Uh, there are no trains, as far as I know, running from Kharkiv. Uh, I did see the trains. I did see people grouped up in front of it. And uh, uh, let me allow me to correct myself. The trains are actually running, and they are constantly evacuating people from Kharkiv. Uh, meanwhile, there are cars. Uh, like volunteers just out of the kindness of their hearts driving up to Kharkiv and uh, evacuating these civilians. How often is there shelling there? We, we, you know, what we read here, and, and there's a lot of fog of war here. You're literally there. Um, we read that Kharkiv has been bearing the brunt of the Russian assault, uh, artillery shells, missiles. Um, can you give us a sense of that? Are they hitting it regularly? I was twice. I was there twice this week, and uh, I heard shelling off in the distance. Uh, I was just standing at a hospital, and I could hear uh, it was as if this someone was playing this really loud drum. Uh, of course, it was uh, artillery shelling. And uh, in the short while I was there, uh, I heard it happen quite often. 
It's just that today, I believe, uh, because it was it's March 8th, uh, Women's Day, uh, I think there was just less of uh, uh, less violence in general. Uh, but also because yesterday during negotiations, uh, they sort of simmered down and let gave civilians a chance to escape. What what is the sense of the Ukrainian military and the population's response there? Is the city like Kiev? Is it secured? Is it essentially? A, are they fortifying streets? Are there are there are Ukrainian forces and volunteer forces there um, prepared to for street battles? Yes, absolutely. I saw troops everywhere. Entering the town, you will encounter up to seven or eight checkpoints. And uh, at each checkpoint, you have to stop. Uh, sometimes they'll ask for your passport. And once you're in the city, uh, there are still troops everywhere, and they're always on the lookout for suspicious people. Are, are, and what about those who are injured? Are the hospitals functioning? Or is there food there? What's the supply situation like there? So these cars I talked about, the ones that... Uh, drive in to evacuate civilians uh, they don't go with an empty trunk they go with supplies they offload the supplies and then they go back to safety with civilians and these supplies sometimes end up at the hospitals uh, I did visit one hospital in fact two hospitals and both uh, had supplies being handed to them uh, two of uh, two of these hospitals personally we brought supplies to and uh, they're functioning. Uh, I saw many doctors come out to uh, grab those supplies and bring them inside. So they're still there. Uh, and they're doing their good work around the clock. I'm, I'm speaking to Shant Kalkacharian, photojournalist and videographer. He's been involved. He's been in, in Kharkiv and Dnipro. You've kind of gone from journalist. Now you're helping out. What, what changed for you, Shant? Uh, when I came into contact with a local volunteer group that I was documenting with uh, my colleagues, I uh, I was put in touch with uh, this uh, driver. His name is uh, Roman. And Roman is just an all-around great guy, a father of three who sent his uh, three kids and his wife west, and he stayed back to evacuate civilians from Kharkiv. And I was very inspired by his actions. And I thought to myself, okay, let me join him for one day and document him and what he does. And uh, once I went on that trip to Kharkiv and came back with uh, uh, civilians, uh, I thought, wow, this is very noble work of him. Uh, I'd like to go again. And so I went again today. Shant, um, first of all, stay safe. They're extraordinary acts of bravery. You are among them. Uh, can we, uh, hey, brother, let's stay in touch, okay? I know Finn DePoncia, your, your, your colleague, well, Shant Kel, Kacharian, photojournalist and videographer. Uh, you got a home here if you ever need to tell a story or any of the people that you're with. Thank you, sir. Stay safe. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk again. So just the bravery of these people telling stories and doing the right thing. So that's what it's like to live in a war zone. Think about that. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about the impact of energy and on the price of the pump, the human cost, the economic cost, everything. 
As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program, everybody. How's it going? I know my uh, broadcast is not sounding perfect. I'm still at home with the uh, COVID sitch, or as my son says, he, he now calls it the row. I don't know why. The row, row. You know, whatever. The war, as we just heard, is devastating on the front lines for Ukrainians, but the weapon of war of Vladimir Putin, which he thought was the dependency of the EU and the world on Russian oil and gas. But now that the U.S. has announced no more Russian imports, now that the EU and Germany especially have taken extraordinary decisions to wean themselves totally off gas, that's going to be a dramatic shift in the world. But meanwhile, you're probably driving around today thinking, I'm paying a buck 88 here where I am in Ottawa. Buck 88 regular, a leader. Two bucks in Vancouver. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and he'll give you a sense of not only how much you're paying, but how this is about to go up. Because the cost of democracy, people are going to tell you this, is higher gas. And this is going to happen, but maybe it could be replaced. Maybe there's things are going to change. Uh, Dan, how are you, buddy? <laughs> I've had better days, and I kind of wish I'd be talking about happy news. But then again, uh, this is not the kind of environment we live in these days, is it? It is not. And and I want to put this into perspective. Um, look, pocketbook issues matter tremendously. You can't just say, think about the people in Ukraine. They have it worse. That is true. But everyone's got a budget they've got to meet. To give us a sense of where gas prices are today and where they're going. Well, look, we started off the year here with a buck forty a liter, um, and the diesel at ten cents below that. We're now at, as you pointed out, dollar eighty five, dollar eighty three, dollar eighty seven, and eight in some cases for gasoline, and as much as a dollar ninety five uh, for and ninety seven for diesel. Um, so that elevation uh, is dramatic and substantial, but it isn't over yet, uh, uh, Evan. What we're looking at here is. On Thursday, I am fully anticipating another $0.10 cent a litre increase. So, if you, so it's going to bring us a lot closer here in Ontario, for instance, to $2 a litre. Uh, diesel will move to about two ten to two fifteen because for every penny increase in gasoline on the markets, we're seeing at least uh, 1.5, if not $0.02 cents for diesel. And it just goes to show you how tight supply has become. And more importantly, uh, just how uh, significant a uh, hit this is going to be. It, uh, what worries me more than anything else is the damage this does to the Canadian economy at a time in which it's expected to come out of the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, on all pistons, if you will. Uh, you know, guns are blazing, hitting the ground, running, call it what you want. And uh, we're, like to, we're likely to stumble. This will bring the Canadian economy and many other nations to a screeching halt. Yeah, the U.S. as well, uh, where gas prices are. We're going to get to solutions in a minute, but but first let's get to um, reasons why. Then we'll get to consequences. Look, when diesel goes up, trucking goes up. When trucking goes up, every the cost of goods from food, everything goes up. That's a infl- massive inflationary pressure. So fuel drives inflation, among everything else. Why is it happening, though, Dan? Is it all the war? What's cooking? Yeah, before the war, Evan, we uh, had a, uh, a global shortage of supply. You and I spoke last May when the International Energy Agency came out and said, oh, no, don't produce any more, no more gas, no more oil. 
a few weeks later, they realized their numbers were off <laughs> substantially. Before the war began, Evan, on a global on a global basis, we were short about two and a half million barrels of oil a day. Uh, demand was surging. Supply wasn't meeting that. There's a whole host of reasons for that. Countries that have large reserves like Canada just weren't building any more pipelines, therefore couldn't get product to market. The United States was going down the same path uh, and, of course, had gone into this interesting position of uh, pre-pandemic, 13 million barrels produced every day, now down to 11.5, 11.7 million. So a significant deficit. I think Putin probably read the cards and said this is a great time to strike and uh, did so knowing the world needed him more but than, can't, can't we put, uh, than can't, we imagine. But can't our part, like, couldn't Saudi Arabia, they're not even close to capacity. Couldn't they just put more? I mean, I know there maybe it's a price gouge, yeah. but can't they just put more oil on the market? We can do that. Hard to do that. If you look at the geology in the wells, you can actually do damage. Um, you can actually do damage the, uh, to the wells by overpumping. They've never pumped more than 11 million barrels a day. So they can't make up the now five, six million uh, barrel deficit that we're seeing. And so no one really has a quick solution. I see that U.S. officials before making this decision today, which should have been done two weeks ago, were down, of all places, Venezuela, saying, hey, can, you, uh, can, we, uh, can we borrow a couple of uh, thousand barrels of oil? Uh, they're also quick, quickly trying to find a way out of the Iranian uh, sanction uh, issue on nuclear, uh, on its nuclear ambitions. And so the world's becoming a much less safer place, and security is obviously going out the window as we realize these prices uh, are likely to bring uh, about, unfortunately, uh, a significant and, slowdown in, in the economy. And by the way, Russia is just now threatening to cut off gas from Nord Stream 1. Wow, wow. They, so they are saying means... we, we could cut off natural gas. That that shuts off the lights in Europe. I know Europe's got a you know, maybe a six months six months of reserves in natural gas because yep. you can store LNG. But yep. that is a that is an escalation. So so what what can what solutions are there in the short term of any for Canada? Rationing rationing. There will have to be rationing of supply. The prices will do that in part, but I think we're going to probably have to appropriate and make sure that, uh, you know, no one's using more than they need to uh, in order to get through uh, this, this period. Uh, we have plenty of supply here in Canada, but I think in, in, in terms of our ability to be able to provide um, to other nations, that's definitely circumscribed. We can't do that. And so other nations are going to have to go through this process of, uh, you know, every second or third day, people filling up natural gas. Thank goodness we're coming out of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. But, uh, you know, if, if uh, Russia does make good on its threat to counteract uh, and uh, Europe goes down this road, uh, 90% of Italy's uh, natural gas uh, comes from comes from Russia. Ditto for Spain. We are looking now at a point in which we're going to have to make a decision. Is it an energy crisis wrapped into a security crisis? Or is it, in fact, and I dare say this, the policy on climate uh, policies I think are going to have to be delayed. They're going to be pushed back a bit because this is a, a real veritable crisis in front of us. And what do, people, what do you make of when people are saying we're going to stop the gas tax? Governments here are saying we're going to stop the carbon tax. I know Ontario mm-hmm. is saying don't boost the carbon tax right now. What's your sense? Well, look, uh, three weeks ago, I appeared before the House of Commons Finance Committee budget consultation suggested we actually might want to postpone uh, increasing the carbon tax. That would be a first step. Second one, Evan, you and I talked about this 20 years ago uh, when I was a budding MP on the energy and consumer file. I think the federal government is going to, and provincial governments are going to have to think about rebating GST to people, especially for home heating bills and things like that. It's an, it's an idea that worked. Uh, federal government coffers are going to be flush with cash and the economy is going to slow down. Something has to be done because something is about to give. So tell me how that would – I'm speaking to Dan McTague, and, and he, he's a former MP, so this is a policy – 
rebating GST on your gas with that, you know, people, it's a cash flow thing with that. It's hard to do that just at the end of the year at tax time, which I think, look, I, I ended up writing a book on energy. You were an MP. Yeah. We've been talking about this for 20 <laughs> yes. years. I can't even remember if that's an annual thing or they could yeah. do that quarterly like they do the, the rebates for the uh, carbon tax. Yeah, GST uh, credits would be the way to go about it, at least to mitigate the impact on those on fixed incomes and those who are most vulnerable. Um, it's GST way back in uh, 2002 and again in 2004. We did it twice. Look, the feds are picking up and the provinces are picking up billions of dollars in windfall as a result of the HST, GST being applied to the higher price. I think it's that's a starting point, but we're going to have to have a serious discussion on taxation, like it or not, right. uh, and uh, we have to find a way to alleviate. Otherwise, consumers are going to go broke. Dan, Dan, you're right. I, I, I got a call-in segment next, and I want people to call me at one eight five five six three three ten ten and seven ten ten about this and what governments could do. But just, I'm also going to ask if if this is going to either you know uh, accelerate the switch to EVs. I just got a couple seconds, Dan. Is this going to happen? Yeah. Uh, might, but the cost of EVs is going to the roof. Don't take my word for it. Elon Musk uh, made a very famous statement the other day, simply saying, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> Desperate times require desperate measures. He realizes we need to produce more oil and gas. That means building pipelines in Canada, folks, like it or not. Danny, you want to stick around and, and take calls with me? You're always welcome, my buddy. Uh, Dan McTague, um, <laughs> I know you're busy, but I know you got a crazy day. I, I want to, yep. I'm going to throw the the, the, uh, the lines open. Hey, man, thanks. Always a pleasure. Hey, appreciate that. Thanks, Evan. Cheers. One one eight five five six three three ten ten and seven ten ten. Are you considering switching to an EV? What should governments do to lower the price of gas? That's next. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back. So Dan McTigg, who uh, knows more about gas prices than you and I will ever know, just broke some crud news to all of us that you should expect gas prices to go up on Thursday 10 cents a liter. 10 cents a liter? Freaking kidding me. President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. So you're going to be playing close to two bucks a, a liter. I was going to say a gallon. A liter. You'd love to pay two bucks a gallon. And I've asked you to call me or text me. One, what should governments do? Rebate GST? Delay carbon pricing? I know some provinces have the carbon rebate. Or are you considering switching to an electric vehicle? one 1010 or 71010. Now, one thing about EVs, they're bloody expensive. Uh, two friends of mine, uh, both um, RCMP officers are thinking of buying one. They just told me on the weekend about it. They, they say, we just can't afford our gas anymore, so we need a city car. And But they're looking for the cheapest EV. Another friend bought an EV. <coughs> Pardon me. Still dealing. Maybe I've got the uh, COVID here. I don't know. Testing negative. But, uh, you know, you got, they drive a lot on the highway and they're worried about range. They got range anxiety. So what do you want to do about this? Uh, Andrew, what's up? You're in Laval. A couple points. First, they should reduce the taxes from the gas. I think it's somewhere of 65, 70% of the, <clears throat> the cost of gas is the taxes. 
they should cut that in half. Now, people will say, well, how do they make up the revenue? Well, they make up the revenue because the cost, the raw cost is more expensive, right? So if you have 70% of something at $5 or now the price is $10 and you charge 50%, you're not losing revenue, right? So, well, not much anyways. You're going to still make it up. Second, they need to turn around and start um, using more of the pipes, uh, the pipelines, because even in the U.S., it was Jen Psaki ended up saying that the oil companies have 70 percent that they're not even using to full capacity. And then finally, the third, the government, at least in Quebec, for hundreds of thousands of cars over the last three years that have made the switch to electricity, they're no longer getting 60 or 70 percent of the gas companies tax revenue. They're getting 100 percent of the revenue because it's all Hydro-Quebec and it's a monopoly, at least in Quebec it is. So there's no reason, at least Quebec, they shouldn't be reducing the tax by 30, 40, 50 percent of the gas. That's what they should do here. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. So thank you for the call. And I think you're going to get a lot of support. Um, Jen, I want people, if you want more information on, <coughs> just go on to the nrcan.gc if you want to get, <coughs> pardon me, the uh, fuel consumption levies in Canada and, 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 you know, basically on average, 14 to 16 percent is what you pay uh, on average uh, in taxes on gas throughout Canada. As I look, uh, everything's different. Uh, you know, you're, you're comparing uh, Quebec there to other, um, other jurisdictions, but I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to give you a sense of it. So I don't think it's 60% uh, of that. Okay. Uh, let me take some more calls here as I've lost my call base here. Um, uh, let's go to the next caller. Just introduce yourself. My call thing just just dropped out here. Go for it. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Who's that? Oh, my name is Andy. I'm calling from Montreal. Oh, Andy, I got you back. Okay, go for it. So first of all, the the gas or the oil prices, I believe they are on on the future market basis. So this prices is gonna the oil is gonna be delivered maybe three to six months from now. So you should look at the prices that were three months ago, and that's how much the could be the price today, but also there's no such re- there's no reason for a carbon tax because it doesn't work. Second of all, what is the price of gasoline in Saudi Arabia, a self-producing, self-sufficient country? Yeah, Andy, I appreciate it. Uh, um, you know, it's different, and, and thank you. Saudi Arabia, uh, you can't really compare the kind of oil that they produce. Uh, they have a different situation, and I'm not going to compare what the Saudis pay to what Canadians pay. We have a totally different climate. We have a different kind of, uh, you know, we, we, do, we produce a totally different kind of gas, uh, and or oil, rather. It's a totally different method. Uh, does the carbon tax work? Um, there's lots of debates about that. Um, uh, putting up, look, a price signal changes behavior. We know that. And, and, and conservatives, liberals, and NDP all ran on a price on carbon to change behavior, uh, in the last election. So I'm not going to relitigate that, but maybe, maybe you delay the increase, Andy. Uh, Rick in Chatham, what's up? Hey, boy, what a subject. Uh, I think we're all going to become energy poor because, you know, for the heating your homes and just trying to make a living now. I mean, the government doesn't want to lower this because look at all the revenue they're getting. This is a new tax increase that they said they will never uh, give us a tax increase on their next election. But, I mean, all these decisions are made, I think, from, okay, Toronto, Ottawa. People live in the city. They got busing. They got trains, go trains. But us guys out in the rural area, we got to drive for a living and 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 you get guys like trudeau and i'll say oh yeah we'll just put a carbon tax on it and he never he never had to pay a bill in his life 
He doesn't ever have to pay for his own gas to get around. I mean, it just we're we're becoming. This is frustrating. It's really really frustrating, especially when we should be energy efficient. Energy. We don't. Have, we produce our own energy here. Like yeah, we should. I, not I, I, I'm problem. with you. I, I think one thing about the rebate, at least it helps, but you're 100% right. If you live in a rural area, um, you're driving way more and, and you get much more punished by it because you don't have mass transit. And I totally, I'm, I'm listening to you, Rick, and I appreciate that. And Rick, listen to this. I'm just going to read something. Uh, Evan, I'm 25 years old. I bought a house an hour from work because anything closer is unaffordable. Check one, housing problem. So, right, look at how these cascade, Right. My commute in my van will be 160 bucks a week now. I'm looking for an EV. They're out of stock across the province and cost $50,000 or more. Rebates are 2500 to 4500 depending on the car. I want an EV or a hybrid. I can't afford to find one. So listen to this. Young guy trying to buy a house, can't afford a house, has to move out. When you move outside of the city, you got to drive more. Exactly what Rick's talking about. Your gas bills goes up. He wants to shift to an EV. The price of an EV is bonkers. Their range sucks. The infrastructure to get um, uh, charging is not up to par, as someone just said. Yeah, these are critical. Hey, Evan, I'm 64 years old. I live in a pension. I'm very fortunate to own my two-door Jeep outright. What I've done to compensate for gas and my gas guzzler, which I love, I've taken cooking lessons off YouTube. I'm learning how to eat healthy on 50 bucks a week. True story. I love it. And I don't worry about gas. It's what I hope people, I hope people fight to get it lowered, but I'm fighting my own way. Have a fantastic day. Hey, I just want to say this. Can you imagine? This is a great note and I really appreciate it, which is people are fighting to make ends meet. And I know there's a lot of partisanship, and I know we talk about the war and big things, but this, every day, people are sitting at their tables, sitting in their bus shelter, and they're trying to put the numbers together to figure out how they get their commute right, and to put groceries on the table, and to pay for that hockey league for a kid, or if you're a student, to pay off a loan, trying to buy a house, or rent, or pay for shelter, Food bank usage is going up. We got an affordability crisis. And if we forget about the individuals, I wish I knew your name, who are saying, you know what? I got to learn how to cook better. I got to save on cooking. We are, we are going to be in trouble, folks. We, we got to have more of this. This conversation will be the significant conversation of the year. We'll take a break. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. The Olympic Games are over in Beijing. I know the Paralympics are still going on, but there is an extraordinary, extraordinary issue going on in in a world you may not know about—the bobsledding world. Okay, this is pretty extraordinary. And I want to bring on two athletes to talk about something that we don't talk about enough. The culture inside professional sports. And 
Alicia Risling is a veteran pilot on Canada's national bobsleigh team. And the 33-year-old competed for Canada at the 2018 Games in Pyeongchang. Didn't compete in Beijing. And Alexander Kopach, retired Canadian bobsledder. And, of course, he's an Olympic gold medal. Uh, first of all, both of you, thanks for joining us. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's great for us. It's uh, important. Okay. I don't think, you know, look, you, you both know because you're high-performance athletes that the Olympics come and in a sport like yours, it's kind of like for bobsled or skeleton, uh, people sort of pay attention and then they kind of disappear every four years. And yet that's your life. Uh, Alexander, let me just start with you. What is the culture there? What is going on inside there? And why is there, why is there this, this call for resignations? What is this? Well, there's a, there's a lot of problems with how it's, it's rooted in fear. Um, and, and that fear is used against us. Um, you know, fear of losing our spots, fear of admitting that we have injuries, um, fear of not getting funding. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the, the primary root causes of, of a lot of the athletes that have been uh, injured or disenfranchised or, or just kind of left, um, you know, with anger and, uh, and, and mental health issues. Uh, Alicia, explain, tell, tell me, give people a sense of what it's like in there and what this culture is like, because I don't think people really understand what you're going through and you, athletes like you and, and Alexander. Yeah, I just, I just want to clarify. So this is not just bobsled. Um, Bobsled Canada Skeleton is a yeah. the only NSO that has two sports within it. And so this has kind of been a unity banning of both the Skeleton and the Bobsled program, um, just because we're fed up. <laughs> we've, we've been involved in this in this culture and in, in the society for, for some of us, like myself, like 10 years. And um, we've begged for change. We've demanded change. We've gone through the process of, of instigating change. And it feels like even though we continually put in the effort and uh, have these demands, they're never met from um, our head office and from the people who run our organization. And uh, quite frankly, enough is enough. Okay, but w so tell us, like, you, I'll just stay with you and then we'll go back to Alex. So, so what's happening? It's like people are getting... Um, spots that they don't deserve? Like, give us a sense of what's going on. Some athletes are getting treated better than others. It seems like this is a, it seems there's no sort of meritocracy here. What's happening? Yeah, there's just so much gray area and everything. Nothing is ever black and white. It seems like um, in, when it comes to our carding criteria, our selection criteria, and don't get me wrong, I've been on the benefiting end of it before and very aware of it. Um, that uh, some athletes get favored um, over others um, when it comes to funding, when it comes to uh, selection spots and, and exemptions and uh, injury status. Um, and then uh, basically what's been going on is just there's been this huge mistrust because of withheld information. And um, the athletes are finally uh, demanding that we have something in place that can protect us just so we when we get into the sport and we want to dedicate our lives to it put our, our financial future on hold that we know that we're all going to get a fair opportunity 
Okay. Alexander, give me a sense of this. Like I, when I read about this, and again, these are allegations to me, I don't, it's like some people are, are getting money, some aren't, some people are injured and they get taken care of. Is there no kind of transparency of what happens? So give me a sense if you're training or how you win a spot at the Olympics and how, how this lack of transparency and unfairness is playing out. Well, I mean, as you're preparing for any season, we have uh, you know national team testing, and that usually kind of sorts out what the ranking is amongst the athletes and who makes what team. And then throughout the year, there's an opportunity for the athletes to to you know take spots or stuff like that. But even as you're approaching uh, the testing period, you're pushing your bodies really, really hard, um, and and you get to spots where it's like. Some athletes, like in, in my case, I, I had two instances where I was told that if I didn't test, I wouldn't have a spot on the team. And I was one of the top athletes and became the top athlete come the 2018 year. And so put yourself in my shoes to imagine that I don't even have any safety in trying to get any reprieve from my injuries. I mean, still to this date, I'm dealing with a tremendous amount of chronic pain that, I mean, it's expensive trying to make your body healthy after giving everything you can for, for, for your country. Um, and so then within all that, I mean, there's, there's also like elements of gaslighting that happen quite a lot. And so because you're, you're constantly, uh, held at, uh, at so-called, uh, uh, emotional gunpoint of your dream of going to the Olympics or representing the team. Like in right? what way? Just give me an example of that. Well, I mean, if, if you not, if you do not do the following things that we require of you, whether it's within what's normal or outside of what's normal, there's an opportunity for a coach's discretion and or to be found uh, in poor standing with your organization. Um, and then a decision could be made where all of a sudden you don't have your spot or you have to then follow a series of other hoops uh, to, to try and get back onto the team or, or things like this. I mean, there's, there's many athletes that have had it worse than, than I've had. Um, but, but even in spite of having success, if, if you're on the wrong side of uh, – of the relationship pool there, then it's harder to get, uh, get support, um, and, and good opportunities. Alicia, 60 current and former members of the national team. Okay. So this is both the skeleton and the bobsleigh, as you say, are calling for the reserve, uh, the, the resignation of bobsleigh Canada skeleton president, Sarah story and the high performance director, Chris Labian. Uh, why are they the ones in charge here? Why, why they call for their resignation? This is the governing body, um, obviously. Yeah, so um, I'm so I'm I'm sure once we can get the full story out about how Sarah Story originally got elected in using proxy votes, um, it kind of felt like a stage coup to take over in the organization. And since then, um, Chris Libian has been managing the bobsled side, but he is responsible for for two organizations, and he's definitely let the skeleton program completely slip through the, the cracks. Um, and we do feel, uh, as a group of athletes, that those two are kind of the spearhead of the problem. They're the heads of the organization, and they're the ones who have failed to do their due diligence um, in, in running an effective program. And when athletes have success in this program, it just isn't a testament to their drive to succeed because we truly feel that athletes have success in the program despite the organization um, and not because they've helped them. Seems it's first of all, it's a bloody dangerous sport that you're both in. I mean, the injuries are high. How would you fix it, Alexander? What, what what's the fix? What's needed? Well, I think trust. Trust is a big thing, and knowing that uh, you know the the organization has the athlete's health and safety at a, at a, at a forefront, um, and that can be demonstrated when certain athletes become injured. Um, you know, let's say that they're not the top athlete. There should be almost like a triage scenario where everyone has the right 
to, to become healthy, right? We're, we're doing this um, in hopes of winning medals for our country, right? We're, we're putting our careers on hold. We're, we're putting uh, salaries on hold from, from better jobs that we could be pursuing. Um, and I think, I think that kind of gets lost um, because a lot of us feel like we're very much replaceable. Um, and there are elements to that in sport, which, which are a truth. Um, but our time has value and has meaning. And I think that needs to be truly highlighted for the athletes that have given up so much of their lives and health um, for the success, success of the program. Uh, they, they put out a statement saying, Alicia, just real quick, we take the concerns of our athletes seriously as do the completion of every Olympic quadrennial. We plan to meet our athletes community directly soon as possible to review and address their concerns. What's, you, what's your fix? Yeah, they'll meet with us eventually when it's convenient to them. Um, it's the same story every year. We just <laughs> like we, it, the thing for us is it, it's so sick of being disrespected. Um, and it's always on their time, on their availability. And when it's time to kind of have this curated story um, and basically excuses laid out for us. And if it was one year, no one would be complaining. But this has been a, a right. culture like we, this has been year uh, Alicia. Year out uh, we're going to follow this story. So Alicia and Alexander, I'm going to follow this story with you. And I hope to have you back. I got to take a break. We'll be right back. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Hey, welcome back to the program. One of the things that all of us are trying to figure out is who the hell is telling the truth about the war? There's a lot of disinformation. I'm going to start with the Russian side. And I start there because a month ago when I spoke to the Russian ambassador to Canada, Mr. Stepanov, Ambassador Stepanov, he openly lied about Russia's intentions. Oh, we're just gathering 150,000 troops on, our, on the Ukraine border for military purposes. Oh, we're just, you know, we do this all the time. Why, why would we even invade? We have no reason to invade. There's no pretext to invasion. And then, of course, they invaded from the north, the south, and the east. And we're in day 13 of a brutal war. And clearly that was all a lie. Then they, then they put out a statement saying that their goal is to denazify Ukraine, which is run by a Jewish president and is democratically elected. Yes. Yes. Are there far right fascist elements in Ukraine? Yeah, there are everywhere. There are. And I, I, we can talk about different brigades. We've done many stories on them in, in the media that Canadians have actually trained members of the far-right fascist-sympathizing brigades, the Azov Brigade. We know that. These aren't secrets. That's not a pretext to invade Ukraine. That's garbage propaganda. And it continues. Russia had put out pictures of, of tanks surrounding Kiev yesterday. The problem is the tanks were covered in snow and it wasn't snowing in Kiev. It was a lie. The disinformation, the campaign of lies from Russia, the propaganda is overwhelming. The Russians have no, the Russian people sadly have no independent media left. It's illegal to protest the war. This is what a dictatorship does. But there's also propaganda coming out on the Ukraine side. You've heard about a famous ghost pilot. You saw pictures that went viral on the internet. That was from a video game. 
it's hard to understand what to trust. And Cheyenne Sardarizade is a BBC journalist reporting on disinformation, conspiracy theories, cults, and extremism. And I've been following him um, because I think he's doing some of the best journalism on it. And he joins us now. How are you, sir? I'm all right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and, and, and Shan, t- tell me how you break, how you verify what is, what is propaganda, what is disinformation, and what people can trust. We, um, on a daily basis, we go through um, tons of content on major platforms, and um, we try to see um, as much content as we possibly can, and particularly. Um, we look at content that is A, viral, and B, is reaching quite a lot of people, and C, could potentially be harmful. Because, you know, there's all sorts of misinformation on, so on the internet. We don't necessarily have to look at all of them or amplify all of them. And then particularly when there's a war going on right now and quite a lot of people are sharing information about it and are interested in it, there's a specific amount of harm that can be done by misinformation. So we try to look for content that is, getting millions and millions of engagement tons of people are seeing it and could potentially mislead people uh, on say TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. Uh, and the biggest ones, the ones that have got the highest levels of engagement and the ones that are misleading quite a lot of people, we then start investigating, we use a variety of techniques from reverse searching on the internet, from going on, um, platforms and digging to see whether these videos or these images have appeared on the internet before um, to using social media, uh, listening and analytics tools, to talking to um, experts, to using geolocation techniques, all sorts of open source techniques that already exist. We try to use mm. to fact check um, content that we think is suspicious and people should know not to share. Speaking to um, um, Cheyenne Sardarizadeh, a BBC journalist reporting on disinformation, conspiracy theories, and, and extremism, uh, and, and specifically around the war. Um, Cheyenne, what are some of the most prompt? Let's start on the Russian side, and then we'll go to the Ukrainian side, because disinformation is coming from anywhere. What have been some of the most viral moments that have proven to be lies? Yeah, I mean, on, on the Russian side specifically, all the, most of the attempts that we're seeing is trying to portray, like trying to completely uh, present an alternative universe to people. And it's saying Ukrainians are shelling themselves. Uh, Ukrainians are responsible for residential areas being hit. And in some extreme cases, they even go... Uh, go on to uh, talk about the war being being a media fabrication, uh, the war being a hoax, and you know there are scenes of the war in their view that uh, are not real, and Western media uh, are trying to uh, paint a picture of what's happening on the ground, which is not realistic. In some cases, they are pushing the idea that some of the actual civilian victims are crisis actors. Um, quite nasty stuff, frankly. Um, but unfortunately, you, you might think, you know, this is, this, this, this stuff is crazy and people won't believe it. Trust me, millions of people are, are seeing this stuff and some of them are believing it in the West and spreading it. Um, so that's 
on, on the Russian side, that's, that's what's been happening mostly. On the Ukrainian side, it's people um, who are emotional about it. Not not just Ukrainian, by the way. It it, it, it expands uh, anyone who's taking Ukraine's side in this war and thinks uh, they are rightfully defending themselves and are outraged by the invasion. It is sharing content that they think is dramatic and is going to get people emotional um, on on social media, say, um, a residential area being hit or children being attacked or women being attacked. Now, we know this stuff has been happening, by the way. Really, it's been happening in the last nearly two weeks. But sometimes people post videos from past conflicts, from, um, say, military drills. In some cases, we've seen actually video games uh, just, just, to, just to get people emotionally engaged and get a response out of them. Again, that, that's not good. And that still counts as misinformation because why would you, if, it, if, it, if that stuff is actually happening on the ground, why would you need to post stuff that is not from this war? And yeah. again, in some cases, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I think you're right. And you posted these things, you know, the, the, the moving corpse or something. And these are, these are not from the war, but they do, it gives conspiracy theorists saying, aha, this is all a fake, right? And this is the problem. It, it has a very deleterious effect on things. Yeah, they, they, they can be easily taken out of context because it's just 10 seconds of footage that you see on, say, Facebook or Instagram, and then you instantly believe it. As you say, like we had an, an example that had millions of views on multiple platforms that was like a reporter was reporting and there was, there was like dozens of body bags, and then one of the body bags started moving. And then people were like, aha, that's Ukraine, and that, that's not a real victim. The media is lying to you. It turned out that was a climate change protest in Vienna from last month, or there was another one. There was a young man and a young woman who, were, who had like um, blood being like fake blood, not real blood, being applied to their faces. And they were like, there you go. And there was some Ukrainian yeah. being spoken in the, in the video. And they were like, there you go. Those are fake victims. It turned out it was on the production set of a Ukrainian TV series from 2020. Yeah. And, and I just got a minute here. Um, Shine, where do you go to get trusted information? So um, there are sources, obviously, there are well-known news sources that people know and trust. I would say, you know, just just batting for ourselves now, please come to our website, BBC News, um, bbc.com is available to, to all of you on the internet. And you can see we do roundups of these fake videos and images almost two, two times a week. Um, on Twitter, there are, there are people who are investigators, researchers um, that do threads of these of the fakes you can go check that um or, or and, you know, i just want to just tell people and i want to tell people just because I'm, I'm running low on time please uh, follow cheyenne uh sarizade because uh, your work's been great and i'll continue to follow you i'm sorry we ran a little short of time cheyenne but folks check this out it does great work on the bbc the fog of war you gotta lift it we'll take a break Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Well, for a long time, she was a member of our War Room panel every Wednesday. 
with Zane Velji and Tom Mulcair, and then she took a break. Yes, Tasha Carradine, our very own conservative commentator, political strategist. She took a leave from Navigator, and she thought she would, because she was getting a lot of calls, run to be the leader of the Conservative Party. Yesterday, she decided, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to back Jean Charest. And so we have invited our dear friend Tasha Carradine back on the program to find out what the heck happened hello tash hi evan first of all your 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 a big decision and the amount of work that you put in is extraordinary and i don't know how much you've slept lately but give, give us a sense of, of what happened on your journey i i think for a lot of people they they'd love to sort of pull back the curtain on, on what it means to think about running for the leadership of one of the the two main parties in canada it is quite the exercise. Yeah, and, and you don't know how it is until you're in it. Um, it involves talking to literally hundreds of people across the country, um, caucus members, uh, organizers, average you know members of the party, and people who weren't members who were inundating my various portals, Facebook, DMs, Twitter, everything, with messages saying, hi, we want you to run, or... I'm interested in helping or it was, it was an incredible experience actually, because um, you know, when you're a commentator and you talk about issues, you get feedback, but it was nothing like that. It was, it was, I really felt sort of a duty to, to take this really seriously because so many people were, were seeing that and, and are looking for some optimism and hope. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up in the place I'm at now, because in, in having those conversations, I also had conversations with Jean Charest and it was very clear that we share a common vision for where we'd like the party to go um, common policies on many issues that um, he's put forward on things, issues from the environment to fiscal policy to and the biggest one being, I think, the unity of the party and the need to have a big tent and to be inclusive and to get the conservatives in a winning position so they can replace the government, uh, the liberal government. So all this in my reflections, I realized we're going after the same thing. We're going after the same people, though. That's a problem. If you're going after the same people, you're basically fighting each other. And there's no point doing that. Um, I would rather get behind him and with my team and work towards a common goal. So that's what I decided to do. So you build this team, you decide, you have this conversation with Jean Charest. Why Jean Charest? Um, you, you, you've seen Pierre Polyever, the only one who's, who's declared. He's saying Jean Charest is not even a conservative. He's a liberal. Jean, he's not liked by Stephen Harper. He, he, he supports the carbon tax. He uh, hasn't been in politics. He's from a different generation. He has actually raised tax. This is the wrong guy in the wrong place. He can't unite the party. Like, why is he a good guy for the job versus, well, the only declared candidate, Mr. Polyevre? You're reading too much Twitter. Uh, you're spending too much time there. Seriously, Evan, no, he is a conservative. I have known Josh Ray. Since I was a teenager, literally, I was his youth chair in 1993 when I was 23, and I followed his career through the referendum in 95. And you know, he is a conservative. For first of all, he was a progressive conservative at the time under Mulroney. Um, and when he came into the Liberal government, um, you know, which was he was basically drafted to do that during the referendum crisis to keep Quebec in Canada. And he, he did that. He was he was the loyal soldier to his country and he left federal politics where his heart really was and went to Quebec. And there he you know he balanced budgets. He actually lowered taxes. Um, he pursued free trade with Europe. He did a number of things that were very parallel to what the federal conservatives did and what they stand for. And yeah, he's, he did start a carbon market with California and Ontario. Um, but you know what? Uh, we need a strong environmental policy. We don't have, and Canadians have told the Conservatives this in poll after poll, 
you don't have a strong environmental policy, you're not going to get elected. You're not going to get seats in the 905. You're not going to get seats in Quebec. This policy has to take into account and respond to the demands and needs of the West and of the fossil fuel economy, which, you know, Jean Charest is not about to get rid of. There's nothing like that at all. He is in favor of continuing to develop that resource, but it has to be done responsibly. And he's going to come out with an environmental policy that responds to the needs of both the West and the East. I I know this. um, I have faith in that. And so I think that's going to be a winning formula on that score for the party. So Jenny Byrne, who is running the Pierre Polyevre campaign, is the only time the former federal progressive leader, conservative leader and Quebec liberal premier has ever come up in conversation has been in the context of, oh, my God. Did you hear Sheree was consulting for Huawei to help them mm-hmm. deal with the Meng Wanzhou issue? There's another one that's out now that he was uh, a registered lobbyist and a board member of the Ecofiscal Commission defending the carbon tax. How will he defend that against a certain group of conservatives like Mr. Polyever who want to axe the carbon tax? Yeah, well, Pierre's been very categorical about axing the tax, um, but how is what, what environmental policy is he going to bring in? I think that you have to look at this and say, well, technology, yes, I think technology is a huge part of the solution, but you have to incentivize companies to actually adopt the technology. And so you have two, two things, carrots or sticks, regulation uh, or, or taxes. And if you want to avoid the taxes, you, you change the way you do things. And so that is what the policy is based on. It's a, it's a market response. So I think that, you know, we'll have the whole carbon tax debate that will come out. But until you have a policy to replace it, I think it's, it's wrong to just dump on the mechanism completely. There's ways to make it work better for families in suburbs, for rural customers. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, I know I've been looking at this, so I, I know what's out there to do. And Mr. Charest understands this problem, too. So, you know, um, I think that you've got to look at the big picture. And the conservatives need to find policies that resonate in a, in a full, like a pan-Canadian, pan-Canadian, as you say in French, way. And I know Sheree can do that. He is a national politician. He's not, okay, you know but, what? But, Christy Clark was a liberal. Let me just say one thing. Leona Alslev, who is talking about running in this race, it, are they going to say, oh, you can't run because you were a liberal before? I mean, no, but you can, labels are nothing. Labels are you nothing. You can run, nothing. but can you, I guess, my question is, what's the party? So Polly Everett is out there saying she's going to scrap the carbon tax because of inflation and we got a problem with gas and groceries and all that. What's the path to victory for? He's got, by the way, you know, Paulie Ever's got a, you know, he's got data collection going on with his freedom protest mm-hmm. stuff. He's got more endorsements from MPs that didn't, that doesn't always help, as you know, but he's got them. What is the path for Sheree? How do you build a victory? Well, first of all, we're not a protest party. And I think that is a really important thing to say. The conservatives are not a protest party. They are a party that is not fighting against things. It's fighting for things. And so to your point, you have to build the membership. You have to sell memberships to people who want to be constructive and to build a party to win. And that's what Sheree has to do. That's the challenge. There's no question. It's a big one to sell those memberships by June 3rd. Um, but I believe that with the forces he has and the you know, people that I have and, and other people who are flocking you know, daily, there's going to be, I understand, a lot of momentum for, for Calgary for Thursday that, that's in the heartland of, you know, of the oil patch. Um, I, I think he can do it. And then there's the, there's the barbecue circuit after that. You know, there's, memberships will be sold. But then there's the charm offensive, too. And we know Jean Charest is a very charming guy. He's a nice guy. He is an affable guy. And he's sincere. And I think when he meets even those people who right now you might consider be you know, part of the base that would be of a different inclination or be skeptical of him, I think they'll give him yeah. a chance. And I think they'll listen to what he has to say. Okay, so let me ask you, Tasha Carradine, during the last campaign, 
you had Aaron O'Toole suddenly trotting out Brian Mulroney. This is not your grandfather's party. And he tried to move to the center, instituted the carbon tax. Then he got knifed in the front, knifed in the back. Hasn't this path just been tested and failed? No, you got to test it with the right messenger. That's the thing. I, I totally agree with you. The problem with Aaron O'Toole is that he, he changed his stripes and people didn't know, you know, will the real Aaron O'Toole please stand up? And, and people felt betrayed because they voted for the true blue conservative and they thought he wasn't when he uh, moved the party more to the center. Josh Charest is going to be Josh Charest. You know what you get. He's not going to pretend to be anything to win this leadership. He's going to be himself, and I think he will win it on that basis. And then he'll go forward as leader on that basis, having rallied the party and united it. That's the whole point of the exercise. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's what he has to do. And uh, I'm happy to be helping him do it. Boy, oh boy. It is a Donnybrook coming, isn't it? It's going to be fun. Six months. Come on. We're going to be, we're going to be chatting. And you know, then, of course, fun. maybe maybe uh, Patrick Brown <laughs> jumps in, the mayor of Brampton. Maybe. The yep. Tasha Carradine. Well, listen, I will say this. First of all, you're incredible. We uh, we love having you on the program. Come back to the war room. You always have a home here. A lot of people wanted you to run. Folks, that's your friend Tasha Carradine. She is on the inside. And listen, we always, Jenny Byrne, who's running Pierre's campaign, also a friend of the show. We don't pick sides here, but we pick smart people. Tash is one of them. These are smart, interesting people. And Tash, uh, anytime someone throws their hat or even thinks about it, does the work, you get my respect. Thanks, my friend. Well, thank you. Glad to be back. Tasha Carradine. All right, we've got to take a break. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Um, Justin Trudeau's in Latvia. Latvia happens to be where the biggest deployment of Canadian troops in the world, our biggest mission, is Operation Reassurance on the border of Russia. And today they're re-upped it. it was, it's, it's done next year, but now it won't be. Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau, has been traveling with the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister was with the Prime Minister of uh, Spain today, Latvia. And Marika joins us to tell us what happened today, the head of NATO as well, yeah, in Stoltenberg. Marika, give us the update of what we need to know from from the front lines here and and how the NATO countries and and the EU are, are handling the Russian threat. Well, I mean, from from the perspective of Eastern Europe, we saw Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and those other leaders that you mentioned really present a show of diplomatic and military force to the Russians, really underscoring that they are united, that they are willing to invoke Article of Five, which which means that one an attack on one country is an attack on all countries in NATO if Russia escalates the aggression beyond Ukraine. But I have to say, Evan, that so far we have not had seriously substantive policy announcements from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau while he's here in Europe to address how to further support Ukraine, either through humanitarian efforts or through military efforts. Speaking to Marika Walsh from The Globe, yeah, I was surprised today, you know, they announced that they're going to, they are going to uh, renew the uh, Operation Reassurance. That was actually in Anita Anand, the defense minister, who was there, her her mandate letter. So it wasn't a surprise announcement. I, I wasn't, I just wonder, you know, even with, you know, closing in on 500 and, and it will be up to 700 uh, members in the coming weeks, um, Marika, it is still a tripwire. I mean, Russia's got 
150,000 troops surrounding Ukraine now. Um, I guess the question is, is it even close to enough? Well, I think it depends on what you're trying to do. From the perspective of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg made it very clear today that their goal is protecting NATO countries. That's the 30 member states that make up NATO. He said that's about a billion people. And his focus is that. So from that perspective, I think it is likely um, effective. People believe that this is not a line that Vladimir Putin wants to cross or will cross. However, they also note that they didn't think he would cross other red lines. I think the bigger question is, what does this do for Ukraine? And the bigger question is, what more is the West doing to support Ukraine? We saw moves from the U.S. and the United Kingdom today on um, making moves on banning Russian oil. But we haven't seen Canada yet this week really announce mega changes that would change the impact on Ukraine right now, I don't think. What else? What I mean, there's questions now for Justin Trudeau about whether he'll increase Canada's defense spending budget to two percent mm-hmm. of GDP, which is, of course, we're at about one point three, so we're way behind. There's questions to Justin Trudeau as to whether we'll we'll, we'll actually buy some um, uh, better uh, lethal weapons to ship to Ukraine. We just don't have that many more to ship. I know we did the. Carl Gustav, so 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 the anti-tank weapons, but they're old. Uh, what did he say to that? Any any news? But I, more questions than answers, I think it's fair to say. Evan Murray Brewster asked him about replacing the equipment that is being sent to Ukraine, and and there was no, you know, the prime minister said that will be done, but he made the point that Ukraine needs it more than Canada does, and there's no clear timeline on that. In terms of Canada's defense spending, which lags other countries, and and that underspending is becoming even more highlighted as other countries increase their spending in response to this war. So Germany, for example, just two weeks ago, the Netherlands did a month ago. And so Canada is, you know, more standing out for its lack of spending. The prime minister on Monday when he was speaking in front of Boris Johnson and the Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, said, or he opened the door, I would say, more spending, but there was nothing definitive or committal in it. And so we'll have to wait to see to the budget in the spring as to whether that changes anything. And then, of course, there are still immediate questions now with 2 million Ukrainians fleeing the country. What is being done to ensure those people all have the support they need in order to um, resettle, whether temporarily or permanently? Okay, folks, sorry. It was, I thought Marika dropped out from, from Latvia, and I went on a long monologue. Uh, my machine dropped out here. I'm broadcasting from home because of the COVID situation. Marika, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here, Evan. Yeah, look, at your connection in Latvia is better than mine from my home studio here. I just dropped out. <laughs> but, Marika, maybe you could tell us, uh, there, there's a real question now about uh, the no-fly zone and escalation. What are the next steps there from the, from the EU and the NATO side in terms of fighting Russia? I think that they 
have made clear that the next steps are going to be focused on economic sanctions, on making it more and more painful and more and more difficult for Russia to wage the war. They have made it very clear they are not interested in a no-fly zone, and that's because they believe that it would really escalate things and draw maybe the entire world into this war, which they don't want to do. Their focus is on preserving peace within the NATO alliance and trying to support Ukraine as much as possible without crossing the line that they see of becoming too involved that Russia would then see them as also an aggressor. And so it's a fine line they're walking, but as you mentioned, Ukraine has asked for this no-fly zone because of the absolute dire straits that Ukraine is in. It is a European country, it is a democracy, and it is being attacked. The NATO Secretary General today said, you know, peace in Europe is shattered, and that is due to Russia's war in Ukraine. But NATO has given itself a tight leash as to what exactly it will actually do to help Ukraine. Yeah, the the debate about a no-fly zone uh, is not... I know it's a it's a wicked problem because of mm-hmm. what the Ukrainians are suffering from. Absolutely. By the same token, it will lead. I mean, the it is an inevitable escalation. Russia has anti-aircraft missiles to shoot at NATO, and you're you're in a hot war with them, with Russia. I, I hear your plane's about to take off to Germany, so I'm going to let you go, Marika. Thanks for being patient. Are you how close to takeoff are you? Uh, I think we have about an hour to go. Oh, you have an hour. I thought you had like a minute. Okay, good. No, well, no, Mar- it just sounds like a plane because we're on the road to the airport, Evan. <laughs> okay, so Marika Walsh from the Globe and Mail on her way now to Germany. Probably the most consequential thing that's happened in the last two weeks is the, the transformation of Germany. They're shipping weapons. They're, they've cut their dependency or they promised to cut their dependency on Russian uh, natural gas. These are maybe the most consequential decisions for Russia and has really reset the union in the European Union. Uh, Marika Walsh will be chronicling all of it. Thanks, my friend. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for your patience today, folks. Um, You know, this is part of the reality. Two years plus and we're into this uh, bloody COVID. I really appreciate your patience. I really appreciate your comments today. Uh, I'll just quickly return to those paycheck issues with inflation and and the price of gas. We'll talk more about it. Uh, The real life issues that everyone's facing and that we don't take for granted here. Even though there's big global issues. They never undermine the personal stake of every human being. All right, I'll see you on Power Play tonight. Still be at home, 5 o'clock, News Channel. See you then.